We are finally getting back to our sermon series. We took a break for a couple weeks, um, but we're coming back with um, business part two of our Discipling Culture series, okay? It's Prosperity with Purpose. We are going through all the seven mountains of culture. We started with family, and three weeks ago, I believe, we did business part one. This is part two. This is the part that really applies to you. How How do I take what we're talking about and turn this into practical knowledge, okay? Before we jump into the series, though, we do have an important news segment today, okay? There's been, there's been a lot of news going on. I, I hope you've been paying attention because we had a historic meeting between the presidents of, um, well, president of South Korea, and I don't know what his title is. Any of you guys know what the title is? Dictator. Dictator? Is that his official title? Fearer? I don't know. I don't know. Um, But the leader, the great leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-un, met with the president of South Korea in a historic meeting where they got the photo op, they shook hands, they agreed to peace. Apparently, they are putting together some type of formal peace treaty. I don't know if you knew this, but North Korea and South Korea are, are officially at war. They've been officially at war for decades now. Just they have a ceasefire, right? But right now, as we speak, North Korea has hundreds of artillery pieces pointed at Seoul, which has been a major problem in world politics, because um, we do not want, America and many Western nations, we don't want North Korea um, developing long-range intercontinental ballistic missile technology, right? We don't want Kim Jong-un to be able to send a missile from Pyongyang to us in LA. That's the big fear, okay? And so the idea is that that has always kind of been a red line in American foreign policy, meaning if they ever developed that technology, that was kind of our line, okay, we're going to war. We're going to kill these guys. The problem with that is they have all this artillery pointed at Seoul, and there's just no way to avoid a holocaust of South Koreans, right, with any attack against North Korea, which is why this has been a geopolitical problem for a long time now, and there's been no real way to solve this. Months ago, you know, the rhetoric was ratching up, you know, it was Trump and Kim Jong-un, you know, arguing about who's got more missiles and stuff like this. And it was looking bad. But all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we have this, we have this coming together. And it, it seems like Kim Jong-un has, you know, done an about face. And this is a very, could potentially be a very, very big deal, right? Specifically, a couple things. If there's actual disarmament of the, um, of, what's that, the DMZ? Demilitarize zone, right? If they actually put those artillery pieces away, then this will be an extremely big deal. Right now, it's all talk, right? But if he follows through with the talk, this is a huge, huge win. Um, for us, I think, especially for many of us have, you know, relatives in South Korea, that's a huge win, right, for us especially, um, but for the Western world in general, for the world as a whole, because this really had the potential um, to become a much bigger conflict. So, and this is something we've been praying about for years and years, that there would be peace and reconciliation, and that the North would be opened up specifically to the gospel. Now, I did read an article from um, Charisma, saying that, that, uh, that Kim Jong-un has agreed to open up the, the country to Christianity. That is total fake news, okay? Like, like I, I was like, I swore I read that in a news article, and then I actually looked at the news article, and what he's really doing, he's like prophesying it, right? He, and I'm like, well, that's misleading, right? So uh, Kim Jong-un has not said anything about opening up the North to the gospel. Um, by the way, if you don't know, North Korea is one of the foremost prosecutors, persecutors, excuse me, of Christians in the world. I mean, I... I actually met a person who was tortured in North Korea. He, I gave him a ride in my car. 
he did not look like a very healthy person. Like, I, it was sad, right? But a lot of um, believers get tortured in North Korea. It's a terrible thing. Um, but I, I saw estimates that said there's, there's hundreds of thousands of Christians in North Korea right now, and we're praying that the gospel would be able to go forward. This is something that our church has been praying for all the time. If you go to the main building, they've got pictures of North Korea everywhere because different um, home churches or house churches in the adult side, they're all, they all have a segment of North Korea that they're praying for. Right, so we have, this is something that we are really hopeful. This could be it. Now, I do want to give a, a counterpoint. This could all be a trick. Okay, this whole thing could be a trick. Ben Shapiro, who I have a lot of respect for politically speaking, um, argues that there's a there's a good chance what this is designed to do is basically, you know, convince the South Korean leaders that they don't they no longer need to have U.S. armed forces um, in South Korea. Right? If there's a peace treaty, then it's like, we don't want these U.S. soldiers. There's a lot of elements within South Korea that they don't want U.S. soldiers on their soil. And so this could all be a trick to get the U.S. soldiers off. North Korea could invade South Korea, and that would be terrible. So let's hope that doesn't happen, huh? So let's continue to pray for this. This could be an amazing, amazing thing. If it does turn out, you know, that, that, that it's demilitarized and there is a formal peace treaty, um, I don't know how you could argue that Trump doesn't deserve the Nobel Peace Prize, Okay. He pretty much deserves it at this point. Um, he did a lot more than Obama ever did, if I could just be blunt. <laughs> Obama didn't really do anything, and he won it. it. You have to understand, it's a totally politicized, you know, it's a totally politicized award. But anyways, okay. <laughs> Moving on, amen. All right, as we get back into the seven mountains, what I want to remind us before we dive deeper into this is what I'm doing is I'm giving you a call to fight, to contend for the nations. This is a spiritual war. It's a real spiritual war. It's not, you know, it's like a war. No, no, no. It's a real spiritual war. And we have to, we have to fight for authority. It says fight. I don't know if you guys realize this in the back. There we go. All right. We actually have to fight for authority on each of these you know, each of these mountains. This is important, right? These are generational battles. So sometimes we get that, you know, I don't want you to think, as we're talking about seven mountains of culture, that, oh, what success looks like is like me becoming like a CEO of a company and like, you know, doing all this cool stuff. Now, that can be one picture of success, but the reality is that if you're seriously fighting for righteousness in the culture, what will probably happen is success will probably look more like you being persecuted a lot. If I could be blunt, okay? Now, that's especially when we get into the university system, into education, into the news media, into entertainment. I'll just tell you, those three mountains in particular are totally controlled by a secular humanist spirit. Meaning, if you try and penetrate those mountains, you are going to get persecuted like crazy. And we'll get there. We'll talk, we'll talk about that when we get to those, those places. But I want to get us away from this understanding. Look, the things that God is impressed by are not the things that people are impressed by. Okay, when we look at Jesus and his ministry, but from a human standard, Jesus failed, right? From a human standard, Jesus failed. John the Baptist, from a human standard, he failed. He was supposed to turn the nation to repentance and prepare the way so they would accept Jesus, right? From a human standard, they both failed. They both died. They were persecuted. They were killed, right? But from God's perspective, they were a wild success. Does this make sense? We can't judge our efforts by how man reacts to them. Really, that's why I say we're not fighting for Christians, you know, for Christians to rule or something like that. We're fighting for righteousness to rule. And those are different things, okay? Those are different things. And so I want to take a minute to talk about dominionism. Now, you have to understand this. Dominionism is a slur term, okay? This is a term that is used to demean 
and slur some of the ideas that I'm talking about, okay? Dominionism is this idea, you know, that you want a theocracy, like that we hate the separation of church and state. This idea that there's those crazy Christians out there living in Alabama, right? And they're talking about they have their guns, and they're like, we're take over everything. <laughs> Nobody's laughing, okay. Oh, thank you. Pity laugh. I appreciate that. This idea that there's these crazy extremist Christians and they want a theocracy, right? They want the Christians to rule everything. And a lot of people, when you're talking about some of the stuff that we're talking about, they like, oh, that's just dominionism. I just want to say that is not what we're talking about at all. I love the separation of church and state. I think that is incredible wisdom, as did all of our founding fathers, by the way, who were all devoted Christians. We make it sense? So all of this attempt to vilify what we're talking about is really, you have to understand it's a spiritual attack. You need to discern it. Why? Because I'll tell you where the true dominionism is. It's in the secular world. What am I talking about? I'm talking about if you want to be a professor at a prestigious university, well, you better be a card-carrying Democrat or you ain't going to get that position. That's how this works. Do you understand? Something like over 90% of Harvard faculty donated to the Democratic Party. That's how this works, right? Guess what? If you want to be big in Hollywood, you're going to have to espouse some secular humanistic values. If they find out you're a conservative Christian, for the most part, you're going to get blacklisted. You're out of there, right? That's where the dominionism is happening, okay? It's not, we're not the ones being, you know, dominionistic. This is happening on the other side, but that's the nature of this whole thing, right? You slur the other side with the various thing you're doing. By the way, who are the racists in our culture? I read a, an article this past week about people being outraged about this white girl wearing a Chinese dress. You guys see this thing? So this white girl wore a Chinese dress to her prom, and one really angry Asian guy was like, you know, my, my culture is not your blank bleeping dress, right? Can I tell you what this is? This is racism, okay? This guy is racist. That's what this is. And that's the problem here. What's happening is the left has show, redefined the terms now that is launching accusations of racism when they're the ones being racist. Does this make sense? Why? Because racism is not... It, look, I, I always use this example. I went, to a, I went to a conference one time in South Carolina, and this nice old grand, you know, grandma came up to me and she said, it's so nice that you Orientals are here. <laughs> right? Right? And for a lot of people, like, dude, what a racist grandma, right? Can I tell you that's not racism? She was trying to love on me. She was trying to tell me, I, I, I'm so glad that you're here, right? If you can't discern the words they're saying and see to the heart, then you're, you're never going to be able to discern what true racism is, right? True racism is a prejudice from the heart that demeans you because of the identity, the people group that you belong to, Right? And we have to learn to discern the truth. And I'll tell you, in our university system, in our culture, we're terrible at discerning this now. Why? Because it's, a, it's, it's spiritual in nature, and this is part of what we're fighting against, okay? Where godly values, where righteousness is honored. The reason why we're fighting for righteousness in all of these places, institutions, and society is because where righteousness is, blessings follow. That's how this works. And that's why the fight for nation to be blessed that's why we're fighting for righteousness. And that's why the fight that we're fighting is noble. It's good. It's worthy of our lives to fight the good fight. That's what we're doing. All of this that we're talking about is the same thing. Look, traditionally in Christianity, the only way we know how to fight the good fight is by trying to make people Christian, individuals Christian, right? That's a good thing. I'm all about that. But 
We have to understand there's more to it than that. It's about being a light in our society, fighting for righteous values. That's equally important. And when we as Christians go, hey, well, I'm not going to really fight for righteous values. I'm just going to focus on, you know, personal evangelism and trying to get people to church and stuff like that. Then what happens is you abdicate the responsibility that you have to fight for righteous values. What am I saying? I'm saying this. Like, should Martin Luther King, did he do a good thing? I think he did a pretty good thing. I think he was fighting for righteousness in the culture, even though it was unpopular. Even though at the time he was getting persecuted, he was dividing lots of Christians, but he was fighting for what was right. He stepped out of his lane of just being a preacher, just being a pastor, and he stepped into a place, hey, there's this evil in our culture, and I need to address this. Are we making sense? That's a good thing. That's a right thing. And that's all of our responsibility to some degree. All right. With that, I just want to do a quick review of three weeks ago when we talked about business, okay? All right, number one, business is not evil. You are not a bad Christian because you want to be a business person. That doesn't make you an evil person. We have this, sometimes there's this religious thing, right? Oh, you want to do business? That's because, you know, you're worldly and all you care about is money. That might be true, okay? If that's true, repent, Okay? But you can have a desire to put God first in your life and to seek his kingdom first and feel called into business. That's a wonderful thing. Before, you know, before I became a pastor, I wanted to go to business school. And my idea was I was going to start a business out in the Middle East and I was going to be a, a business missionary. I think that's awesome. Part of me still says, why didn't I do that? <laughs> Here I am, you know. I just want to say we can have a religiousness to say anything that doesn't look like a traditional church position is evil. Does that make sense? And that's, that's, a, that's a total religious spirit. That's not of the kingdom, okay? You can absolutely be a, business, a, a, a godly businessman or a businesswoman, okay? In the kingdom, business is the anointing to support and sustain worthy visions. Business skills are required for every single mountain. They're all they all need business skills. And we talked about why, right? You can be the greatest musician ever, but if you don't have somebody who's helping you out with the business aspects of things, you're just going to be a, a huge blessing to like five people, right? Man, that guy's so good, right? But nobody in the world's blessed by why? Because you have no business skills, right? You need the business skills to distribute and market and, 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 and advertise about your product. Does that make sense? So these are, these are good things. Now, I also said this, when profit becomes more important than vision, the business starts to die. This is a common, common thing that happens with business. They start to prioritize short-term profit at the expense of long-term vision. When you do that, your business is dying, Okay, your call is to understand that, look, money is important, but it's not the most important thing. As Christian businessmen, your definition of success is not becoming wildly wealthy. That's not success in the kingdom. Okay, now I'll say this. If it's a, if it's a, a, a good business, you probably will become wealthy. But that's not the first priority. Does that make sense? And that's an important thing to understand. Okay, and lastly, we talked about top leaders, how to, and that's why leaders are humility and a fierce resolve. These are biblical values, and that's why your character is so important. Your character is important for you to succeed as a leader, right? Look, let me put it this way. People are always blaming other things for why they didn't, why they're not fruitful, why they're not successful in life. 
right? It's always, oh, I didn't get the opportunities or I didn't do this. No, can I just be honest? It's usually a problem with you, right? It's their problem. It's their fault I didn't do well in school. No, it's not. No, it's not, okay? This is why this, this is humility, right? Humility. Why? If you have humility, then you can change, right? Then you can seek to grow, and God will be growing you if you have humility. If you don't have humility, then you're constantly blaming other people for your failures. That's how this works, right? With humility, what happens is you're constantly being thankful for others. Humility, I love humility. Humility is the most underrated virtue of all time. It's the best, okay? Whenever, like, oh, God's humbling you in this season. No. Don't want to get humbled. You know, that's the complete wrong understanding, right? You should be like, thank you, God. Thank you, thank you, right? I'll tell you why. Because as God humbles you, you stop carrying all the burdens you were never able to carry. Right? All the expectations you couldn't possibly carry, you learn to put those down. All the people that used to drive you crazy, you start to actually be thankful for, like, there's such amazing people all around me, right? Wow, they're so great. I'm so blessed to have these friends, all those guys. So you start to enjoy all the people around you. Guess what? You get to enjoy God more, too. Right? Humility is the best. I, you always need God to do a new work of humility in your heart before he can do any other work in your heart. So humility is always at the top of my list when I'm praying for what I want God to do in my life. I'm like, God, humble me more, Lord. I want to be even more humble because God says he opposes the proud, but he gives grace. He gives help to the humble. That's a dang good reason to want to be more humble. You get more of God's help on your life. Amen. All right, let's get to it. Here's the outline for the talk. The Christian businessman or businesswoman, I'm going to go through three principles. Number one, let your light shine. Number two, support kingdom projects. Number three, plant churches at work. Ready to break this down? Amen, Jason. Me and you, bro. All right. Number one, let your light shine. This is important. You must be unapologetically Jesus people. Okay? You don't have to be ashamed of following Jesus. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. So if we are ashamed of the gospel, can I tell you what the problem is? You're intimidated. It's a spirit that's intimidating you. Okay, the spirit that dominates at universities is a secular humanistic spirit that its goal is to intimidate you and feel, make you feel like you're a dummy for supporting these things. Let me put it another way. You have the truth that can set people free in every way. Personally, you have the truth that can lead people to salvation and eternal life. It's in you if you're a follower of Jesus. But you have more than that. You have the truth that can set the nation free. Right? You have the truth that can bring freedom to real racism. You have the truth that can bring freedom to real hatred, to real war, to real curses, real poverty. That's the truth that we have. But if you're ashamed of it, Man, how are you going to influence anybody else? You can't. You just hide that light under that bushel, right? Matthew 5 says, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Let me say this. If you never take the steps 
to overcome your shame now, you think you're going to be able to do it later? It's got to start somewhere. It's got to start somewhere. It's got to start with you speaking up sometimes. Now hear me. I'm going to get into this a little bit later. I'm not telling you to be an obnoxious Christian. Okay? Right? You don't have to be an obnoxious Christian. Okay? You don't have to be. Jesus is so good today, isn't he? You don't have to be that guy. Okay? That's not what I'm saying. Okay? A real humble Christian is actually really pleasant to be around. Because they're really caring. Right? They're thinking about you and how, and how they can love you better and how they can serve you. Guess what? Everybody wants to be friends with that kind of a person. Okay? So our understanding of what it means to let our light shine does not mean to be overtly religious in a lot of weird ways. Look, I get weirded out by people like that. I'm like, man, calm down. Right? You, you know those people who are just... Some of you do. Some of you guys are thinking... You don't need to be like that. But I am saying that if you have the real thing, you should not be afraid to be honest about your real relationship with Jesus. Okay? And guess what? You can be honest about your real weaknesses. Okay? You can be honest about your real doubts. You don't have to. Look, being a good, good Christian is not being a fake Christian. It's about being a genuine believer, having a genuine relationship with him and being open about that. Right? That's, that's what we're talking about here. But we should never feel ashamed to share about our faith, right? And again, I'm not saying, like, look, you only have to share to the level of your conviction, okay? You only have to share to the level of your conviction, okay? Luke 9, 26, Jesus says this, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels, okay? There's a real warning here, right, that Jesus himself says that he will be ashamed of us, right, if we are ashamed of him, okay? So we should be unashamedly Jesus. I, I love, look, I remember I used to see people's posts on, on social media and be like, man, they're so annoying. They're always talking about God all the time, right? And you know what I realized? That's the problem was me, okay? The problem was me. What am, I, what am I saying? I'm saying that, look, I've just surrendered to just being a Jesus freak. Really am, okay? Because I'm trying to annoy people, but it's because it's the honest expression of my heart. This is who I really am. Okay? And it, it, there's always this pressure, like, you got to hide it because you don't want to be annoying to people. Look, that's the other side of this, right? I'm not saying go out of your way to be annoying, but I am saying that you can't be afraid of annoying people because some people are going to be annoyed, okay? That's just the reality. And look, I'm, I'm not going to live in fear of those people, okay? This is the reality of what my relationship with him is like, okay? And this is the call that I really put out. I want people to know him, right? I want people to know him. And I've just surrendered to the fact that people are going to see me as that extremist Christian, that's cool, right? That's fine, okay? I'm, I'm, I'm in, to, in some people's view, I'm a fanatic, okay? I just surrendered to that. I encourage you. I think that if you're really walking with Jesus, a lot of people are going to judge you as a fanatic. I think that's literally how they see it, right? That's what it means to them. And by that definition, you just got to embrace it, right? Yeah, I, I am a fanatic Christian, okay? I am a fanatic Christian. I love him with all my heart, okay? And I want you to really know him. I want you to really know who he is. Okay, so number two, as we let our light shine, number two, we're to stand for kingdom values. Okay, we're to stand for kingdom values. The whole purpose is to influence others with righteousness. So compromise with the world is the greatest danger for the believer. 
Okay, compromise is the thing that silences your voice. It's the thing that keeps you from having passion. Guess what? You can't call anybody to sexual purity if you're struggling with sexual purity because you feel like a hypocrite, right? Which you kind of are if you're like, right? Okay, so that makes sense. I don't say that. You can, you can say, look, this is what the God requires, but look, you only have power and authority in the places where you have freedom, okay? And that's why it's important. In the places where we have freedom, where we see clearly, in those places, we can speak the truth boldly and with love. Okay, boldly and with love. Guess what? When you're trying to speak into places that you feel personal shame about, it usually turns really controlling and weird. Does that make sense? Okay, but when you have freedom in your heart, then you're able to speak passionately from a place of authenticity. Okay, Matthew 5 says this, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. I want us to understand this passage and what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying this, that if we as believers stop influencing the people around us to live more righteously, and he sends judgment on of our culture because of its unrighteousness, then we deserve to be judged as well. That's what he's saying. This language of trampling underfoot, that speaks, biblically speaking, of foreign armies coming in and trampling the people. Okay? So this is what we have to understand. This isn't, it's not like a, if you feel like it. No, we have a calling from God to influence others to act righteously. There's a calling from the Lord. God expects us to make other people live more righteously. Think about that. Because there's a lot. Of, let me give you the secular humanist argument. No, 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 no. Everybody should have freedom to do whatever they want to do. Well, that sounds pretty reasonable. <laughs> right? But is that God's expectation? No. God's expectation is that if a society lives unrighteously, then he's going to judge it. That's his, he expects everybody to live to his standards. Hence the whole judgment thing, right? Right, that's what this whole thing is about. So what we're communicating is that there is a real God who has real standards. Like that's an important truth. And we call people to live righteously. We understand we can't control people, right? I can't control, I can't make anybody do what's right. But I can say, hey, this is what is right. This is good. That's why I speak out on things like abortion, right? Because abortion is not about a woman's right to choose. It is about a baby's right to life. That's what this is. A woman does not have the right to choose to murder another person. But the reality is that a lot of people just don't see it. They don't understand that's what's happening. Look, the, the argument for abortion is the exact same argument that people used against slaves. It dehumanizes them. They're not really human. Boy, does that sound familiar? That's the exact argument that Hitler used against the Jews. They're not really human. We dehumanize them. Once you dehumanize them, then you can justify murder because they're not really human. It's the exact same argument as abortion. So when people are like, you're just being extremist, I'm like, no. You're dehumanizing an entire group of people here so that you can do whatever you want, okay? And I say that lovingly. I say it with an understanding that people don't think that they're murdering people, but guess what? That's exactly how people felt during slavery. They didn't think that they were enslaving people. They were enslaving Africans, 
Does this make sense? It's a different, it's a dehumanization. And in those cases, absolutely, we have to speak out boldly. Can I tell you that Christians, we are the reason why there's not tons of abortion in America. We are the reason, by the way, that slavery was eradicated. That's right. It was us. Don't give me this, you know, it was like the humanists. It wasn't the humanists. It was the freaking Christians that were fighting against slavery. Okay, it was the Christians who were abolitionists, who were moving. Harriet Tubman wasn't a humanist. Man, I hate it when they try and steal, like, oh, no, Martin Luther King Jr., he was a fighter for African rights. No, he was a Christian pastor. Don't give me this garbage, man. Gosh. Makes me mad. Now, if you're in the place of business, if you're fighting for righteousness in business, well, then you better get authority over money. You better get authority. If you're called to this place, you must defeat the love of money. It's a big deal. Jesus is clear about this. You cannot serve both God and money. Next slide. 1 Timothy 6 says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you know, once saved, always saved, right? I'm just reading the verse here. Okay? It's to your eternal salvation. That if you don't deal with the love of money, it's dangerous to your eternal salvation. Even as a believer. Unless you want to reinterpret this verse here. Okay? That's what it's saying. Guess what? Jesus says something pretty similar. Right? The seed sown in thorny soil, he says, right, is the one that grows up. But because of the anxieties of life and the deceitfulness of riches, it chokes the word and it makes the plant unfruitful. Guess what? That's the plant that immediately received the gospel with joy. Brother says he's talking about believers. He's talking about believers who never eradicate the love of money. They're trying to serve money. And guess what? Jesus says, if you have an idol of money in your life, Jesus cannot be first in your life. You have to deal with the idolatry of money. Can I just be blunt right now? A little bit blunt. Many of our parents have an idolatry of money in their life. Okay? I'm just going to bluntly say it. Many of our parents have an idolatry of money in, our, in their lives. And so they're going to influence you that you must put money first. Why? Because money will be there for you. Money will protect you. Money will provide for you. Right? Money will give you respectability. Money will let you enjoy life. All of that's garbage, okay? Look, do we need money? Yes, we need money. It says, don't worry about these things, for your Father in heaven knows that you need them. Right? You're not to worry about any of this. Why? Because if my confidence is in him, then I'm expecting him to provide for me. And this is really, really important, brothers and sisters, because you're living in the richest society in the history of the world. Guess what? The love of money is all over the place. The love of money is the thing that makes so many Christians unfruitful in their lives. Because they've never learned to trust Jesus with their money. What am I talking about? I'm talking about that when the Holy Spirit convicts you, you give radical amounts. You have radical amounts. I'm talking about that it's, you don't even question tithing anymore. Tithing is like, of course I tithe. I'm saying if you struggle to tithe, there's a problem there. Right? Tithing shows I give the first fruits of my money. Why? Because he's my provider. Brothers and sisters, I challenge you to get authority in this area of your life. Get authority in this area of life. And I'll tell you how I did it. 
okay? If, you, if you're afraid that you don't have enough money, this is what you do. This is what Jesus says. You take your possessions, you sell them, you give the money to the poor. Why? Because you don't see how fabulously wealthy you are. That's the problem, okay? The problem is you don't see how rich you are. You have way more money than you need. You know, you can live on, like, rice and a couple vegetables. And my wife's like, mm. <laughs> None of you guys are going to starve to death. Come on now. Nobody's starving to death. Okay, nobody in America is like, you know, well, you know, there's different issues, right? Drug issues and stuff like that. But the point is that a lack of finances is not a serious threat to anybody in America. Okay, people are complaining about poverty and they got like freaking iPhones. Give me a break, right? No, no, no. The problem is not that we don't have enough money. It's that we don't believe we have enough money. And those are very different things. Okay, those are very different things. Uh, go down. I'm going to skip to slide 11. Okay, I'm going to talk right now about a poverty mindset. Okay, a poverty mindset is the problem. Look, you can be relatively poor and feel like you're rich. That's me. Okay. I'm gloriously wealthy in eternity. <laughs> I'm gloriously wealthy. I have all that I need to do what the Lord has called me to do. Okay, I got, I got more than enough food for my kids. I got a place to live. Man, I feel like I live at a resort. So glorious, right? God has richly provided for me because I'm putting my trust in him. Okay, I'm not worried that I don't have as much as Bob next door. Okay? Not worried that I don't have as much as, as that guy or that guy. No, I have enough for what I need. Okay, a poverty mindset is a mindset of powerlessness and lack. It's a fear that I don't have enough. Okay, this is a poverty mindset. It's a mindset dominated by fear of potential danger rather than the hope of real possibilities. Okay, when you have a poverty mindset, you never have enough money because all these terrible things could happen to you, right? You could get into an accident tomorrow. Right, and then you could have crazy medical bills, and then you could need to buy a new car, right? And then somebody else could come and need money from you, right? In your house, there could be an earthquake, and your house could break down. Literally, it's unending, right? All of that is fear. You have to understand what fear is. Fear takes a danger, a real danger, and then it blows it out of proportion. That's what fear is. So there's, it's not like there's no danger. It's just that the danger's that big, and you're like, but no, it's a real danger, right? I could, I could step on that mine. Is there a mine in America somewhere? Probably, right? In the deserts of Utah, right, they've got the one mine. But I could step on a mine one day, right? That's how we think about finances a lot of times, okay? Now, I say this to you, but I, you need to understand this prophetically because the reality is that for the vast majority of you, you're not financially independent. You're living off your parents, Okay? Guess what? It gets real when you start having to pay your own rent. Okay? It gets real when you can't afford boba anymore. All right? It starts getting real. And I want to warn you on that day. Okay? The reality is, if I could be blunt, many of you have almost no authority when it comes to finances because you've never really had to trust God with them. Okay? Or you have little authority. You can't gain authority until you go through the hard decisions of trusting him when it's difficult. Does that make sense? So I'm prophesying to your future selves. When it's difficult, will you choose to trust God? When it's difficult, will you choose to put the kingdom first? I want to encourage you. It, 
there's so many great things. I, I, I highly recommend Robert Morris. He's a pastor in, in, in Texas who's got a real anointing um, in speaking to this. But there's so many people that have authority in this area. I want to encourage you, don't let money dominate your lives. Don't let it dominate your lives. It'll make you a prisoner. It'll choke you. It'll make, it'll make Christianity powerless in your life. No, you want testimonies. You want testimonies of how God showed up and provided for you. You want testimonies of how you wrestled to trust him, but you thought the Holy Spirit was telling you to give, and you needed that money for something else, but you gave because God called you to it, and you saw what God did in response. You need testimonies of how God has been faithful in the area of finances so that your confidence in him grows in this area, your trust in him grows, and then you have authority, and then God can trust you to rightly handle his finances. You know what the reality is? God, I think, wants to give believers a lot of money. He wants to give a lot of believers a lot of money. The problem is a lack of character in the vast majority of believers who when they get a lot of money, they don't know how to steward it rightly. And it kills their spiritual walk and it kills their faith. Does this make sense? Right? Part of what we're talking about with the business mindset with the business anointing, is you have to learn to be a steward of his resources so that he can entrust you with the financial resources of the kingdom, knowing that you're going to put it in the right place. Does this make sense? Guess what? You need to learn to be a kingdom investor. A kingdom investor. Now let's go back to the, um, what slide is this? Number two. No, 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 sorry. Slide nine. Supporting kingdom projects. Okay, second principle. God wants to build things on earth which require money and business skills. What am I talking about? I'm talking about this. He wants righteous companies. He wants charities. He wants missions organizations. He wants schools. I'm going to talk your ear off when we get to schools, okay? He wants TV shows. He wants games. He wants lots of things, news outlets. Jesus, give us news, righteous news outlets in this generation. He wants amazing things. And they all these things require money, okay? All these things require money. He's looking for People who will invest, have kingdom vision, and I pray that it would be you. I pray that it would be you. I pray that you would have such a, a greater vision for the kingdom that you would be able to invest eternally. Because here's the truth. Our money can be invested eternally, and it will reap a great return for us in eternity. That's how this works. You can spend your money on like a nice car, on like, you know, whatever, right? You can spend it. You have freedom to do that so long as you're still tithing. Okay? You have freedom to spend your 90% in a way, you know, as long as it's not sinning against anybody, et cetera, et cetera. You have freedom to do that. You just get nothing in eternity when you spend it on yourself, right? You just eat that Korean barbecue and it's gone. Oh, shoot. Right? It's gone. But when you invest it eternally, you receive an eternal reward. Okay? That's what Jesus is talking about. He says, don't store up your treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, but store them in heaven, right? Where thieves don't break in and steal. What's the point? His point is that when we use our money in faith, as the Holy Spirit gives us faith, we're going to receive a real return on that investment in eternity, and our money is going to be used to bring souls into the kingdom. It's pretty glorious. You need to think of yourself as a heavenly investor, God is raising up 
heavenly investors, people who know how to rightly steward their finances. And guess what? Look, this is important. I'm going I'm to just break this down a little bit. You know, you shouldn't give money to every Christian preacher who tells you to. Why? Because you're responsible for the money that you give to them. Look, I can use all sorts of manipulative tactics on you, right? Right. You sow $9.99 today, you will receive 999 times blessing, right? You can use all sorts of ridiculous manipulative money tactics on you. And guess what? If you fall for that, you're still responsible for where that money goes. It's on your account. God gave it to you first. Does this make sense? So what do you have to learn to do? You need to learn to discern where it's wise, where your money is going to reap the greatest harvest. Does this make sense? This is what a wise investor does in the world, right? What you do is you go, look, your business plan sucks, bro. I ain't giving you a dime because that dime's going down the drain. But you hear another person and you go, but this guy knows what he's talking about, right? This guy has the experience, has the plan, has the expertise, and I'm confident that if I sow here, I'm going to get a great reward in return. We need to do the same thing in the kingdom. Don't just give money to people because they ask for it. Okay? Sow into spiritual sources that you believe are going to steward your finances well. Okay? That's why we recommend Compassion. I think Compassion is a fantastic organization for stewarding resources. I'm I hope that going the money that we're sowing into these kids is going to reap an incredible eternal reward, right? Not only for the kids, right, but for us as we're trusting him with our finances. Amen? Okay, here's the thing you need to understand. When we're talking about supporting kingdom projects, there's a need for entrepreneurship. Everyone say entrepreneurship. Okay, entrepreneurship is so important. It is wealth creation. The only way a society gets richer is by entrepreneurs, okay? It does not get richer by taking money from the rich and giving it to the poor. That just mixes the money around, okay? And what it's often doing is it's putting it from efficient sources that are growing the economy into inefficient sources that are not growing the economy. What's my point? Entrepreneurs are the only ones who add value to a society. Why? Because their whole thing, what they do is they see potential value where there is no current value. Do you understand that your freaking iPhones are made out of like rocks, right? And tree parts and what the, I don't know, silicon. Where, I don't, where do they get silicon? I don't know. But some entrepreneurs like, hey, we can do the, take this rock and, and, and turn it into a screen. I, obviously, this is my pastoral, you know, ignorance here. But you guys understand the concept of what I'm talking about, right? We all utilize the raw materials of the earth and some people have a vision to turn that into something that can be useful in a new way. And when you do that, you add value to your society. And this is important. This is what entrepreneurs do. They see a potential for something, and they go, hey, there's real unrealized value here. They invest in it, and what they do is they create a new product or service that brings greater value to everyone. That's how this works. Can I be honest? Entrepreneurs are in many ways, the heroes of our culture, okay? Now, uh, I'm not trying to say they're the only heroes, right? I think there's lots of heroes, right? Pastors, yay, pastors, okay? But entrepreneurs absolutely are heroes. They're the ones, the reason why we're the richest, most prosperous nation in the world is largely because of the entrepreneurialism in America, okay? It's not the only reason, but it's a big part of it, okay? What is my point in saying all this? I think every believer 
needs to have an entrepreneurial spirit. I think every believer needs to have an entrepreneurial spirit. What am I saying? The opposite of an entrepreneurial spirit is, man, I finally got a job at this place, and I hate this job. This job sucks, right? But there's nothing I can do. Just got to work, right? And you're all depressed, and you feel powerless. You can't change anything. How about you start a company, right? How about you apply to another company, right? No, I can't do that. I'm just lucky to find this job. That's a poverty mindset, right? Oh, this is all I'm qualified for. I can't do anything else. Why don't you read a couple books and get qualified for some more things? Okay? Why don't you practice? Do you realize how much knowledge there is in YouTube? I used to give people guitar lessons. Like, I would literally sit down with them and be like, this is how you do this. And now I just say, hey, shut up and go to YouTube. Right? Because there's people that are way better than me who will teach you if you just bother to click there. Right? And guess what? That's true for so many different skills. They're all available to you, but if you don't have vision for it, all of these resources will go underutilized. The entrepreneurial spirit is the thing that says, hey, I can, I can make this happen. Right? I have no idea how to start a company, but I can learn. Right? I have no idea how to get this to happen, but I can learn. You become a resourceful person. You start to utilize all the instructions, all the videos, all the books. Do you realize we have an entire library filled with books that we bought just for you to read? You're like, oh, but it takes so long to read a book. Took him a lot longer to write it. It took him a lot longer to learn the wisdom to put in the book. Oh, but I don't want an impartation of wisdom. It tastes too, too hard to get. No, you're lazy. Or you have no vision. Right? I'm just going to be honest. Pretty much every one of the greatest leaders that I know is an avid reader. I don't think you can be a great leader without becoming an avid reader. I don't think it's possible. Maybe you can prove me wrong. Okay? But all the great leaders that I know read a lot. This is what this is about. You have to have, go to that next slide, a poverty mindset. Your destiny is vision plus discipline. It's not just vision, right? This whole garbage, if you can dream it, you can be it. That's garbage, okay? That's one important component. You do need to be able to dream it. If you never dream it, then you can't be it. Okay? Some of us, like our ambition is just, you know, just want to work at a coffee store for the rest of my life, right? I, I, I lovingly challenge you. Do you understand the, the reason why you have such a small vision is because all you do is go to coffee stores? <laughs> okay. My point here is you need to see it. I remember I was hired here to do um, to be the youth pastor of the high school group. I had no idea what to do with those youth kids, right? But the one thing I knew I needed to do, I was shocked that this was a church where the Korean church, that they had no vision for their finance, for their studies. I was amazed. I was like, this is the I found the one Korean church in the world, right? Where not everybody wants to go to Harvard and stuff. So I was like, wow, these kids, they don't have any vision for this. So what I did was I started to take them to schools, right? We went to UCLA, we went to Stanford, we went to Berkeley, right? Why? Because you need to envision, you need to see yourself, whoa, I want to, 
I want to be here, right? I want to study here. You get vision for it. Am I making sense? You have to get vision. You have to get out of your bubble. You have to see the world. You have to see all the things that are out there. Do you understand there's so many amazing, interesting things that believers are doing in the world? Not just believers. There's so many amazing things that are happening. But if you never see it, it's very difficult to envision it. My point is this. You need to go to places that you don't normally go. If your life revolves around two coffee shops, your library, and you need to occasionally take some vision trips to go see all the other stuff that's happening. Guess what? You can get 80% of it through YouTube. Okay? YouTube is amazing. What an amazing resource for the kingdom. Okay? But the second part is this. Then you must be disciplined. Okay? You have to become a disciplined person if you're going to realize the vision in your life. That's why we talk about discipline so much. Being disciplined to put God first. Being disciplined to study. Being disciplined to forgive. Being disciplined to do the things that we don't want to do. Why? So that we can be the potential person that's inside of us. I always say this. Practice is the belief that greatness is like a seed within you. Do you know scripture says that you have gifts inside of you? Every single one of you has amazing gifts inside of you. But the reality is the vast majority miss out on our gifts because we never develop them. They just sit inside of us like little seeds, right? And there's a real danger. That's why Paul says to Timothy, fan into flame the gift of God within you. Don't let it lie dormant. For many of us, it's because we've, we haven't had spiritual parents saying, hey, I believe in you. There's potential inside of you. Let me say it for you corporately right now. I believe in you. I do. That's why I'm here. Why else would I be here? It's not because of the money, right? It's because I believe that there is, is great potential destiny in you. And my desire is to provoke it. That's why I say I don't want you to spend your life on that which does not yield eternal benefits. Don't do it. That's the trap that most people in our planet fall into. Don't fall into that trap. But don't fall into the trap of just saying, oh, yeah, God has a great plan for my life. And never getting a real sense of calling. And never disciplining yourself into that calling. Never putting together a plan for growth. Never saying, God, I need you to grow me in a dynamic way. Don't give in to that also. Utilize all the amazing resources that are around us. And I call some of you to start businesses. I call all of you to think about starting businesses. I think it's so important. When I was at my ministry in Berkeley, I put together a team of entrepreneurs. And we got together and we're like, we're going to brainstorm businesses. We just did that for month. It was glorious. I'm so sad. I ended up leaving shortly after we started doing that. But we put together all these amazing business ideas because I'm convinced that believers have to get out of a poverty mindset. You're not a victim of the social structures and institutions of the world. You can change them. You can start a new school. I'm complaining all the time about our universities, right? But I'm convinced we can start new schools, brothers and sisters, we can start, we can make schools that are far better, more effective than what we have right now. And they're not full of all this crazy secular humanist influence, right? We can make new companies, new charities. We can make new ministries. More part of my desire is, oh, I wish the way that we did church would radically change, right? If I could be blunt, I hate this the way we do church. I hate the way, you know, the way I think the Bible, and that's church. That's a terrible way to do church, if I could be blunt. 
Okay, you know the way I think the Bible talks about doing church? It's about having every believer become a powerful minister and function in their ministry gift. I think that's what this is about. And that gets to my last point here, okay? The last thing, plant churches at your work. Why? Because the church was never intended to be confined to church buildings. You got to bring your miracle working faith outside of the church walls, brothers and sisters. We are to live on mission for the Lord. When we stop prioritizing the kingdom in our living, we die spiritually. I know so many older people who were once passionate about God, and now they've lost all their passion and zeal. Why? Because they, they never figured out how to put the kingdom of God first in their lives, in the place of their work. They didn't have a vision. How do I put you first, God, in my work? I'll tell you how. Okay, now this isn't the only way you can do it, but I think this is a good principle to start with. What do you do? Start a church at your company. Why not? I can't do that. Yes, you can. Yes, you absolutely can. Is this legal? Yes, it is. <laughs> yes, it is. Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 gives you the right to have your religious beliefs and practices accommodated in the workplace within reasonable limits. Okay, you can't, you know, you can't have your church service, you know, flowing out into the main workroom and whatnot, but I am saying that you could put together prayer meetings. You can put together Bible studies, right? You can gather workers to contend for your company. You can do all of these things, and you can minister with power in your workplace. That's where you're supposed to be doing it, not here. I have to work here. You have to work there. Okay? Why is it that we're telling you to plant houses of prayer at your campuses? Because it's really similar. It's really similar. It's pretty similar. You start a house of prayer. It's a lot like starting a church at your field, at your place of business. And I tell you, the biggest, the biggest, look, the biggest thing that happens to so many believers is they start to compartmentalize their lives. They have their, like, church life over here on weekends, and then they have their real lives, right? And never the two shall meet, right? They've got their work friends, and they've got their church friends. And then what happens? You get crazy tempted to do all this worldly stuff when you're in the world, and then you come back to church, and half the time you're just repenting for what you did during the week. It's like every, every Sunday you need the same message. God still loves you. He still loves you. He still loves you. Why? Because I'm so ashamed of all the stuff I did all week. How about you get some victory in your spiritual life so that you can take your faith into your workplace? That's what you were created to do, to shine the light wherever you went. But so many of us, we don't have a creative mindset. We're just like, no, I, I don't know how to, I don't know how to, to bless people. Try. Start with trying, right? Start with trying. I'm not saying it's easy. It's so hard. But this is the generation, I have hope, that we are going to transform the way ch church looks in this, in this generation. God's already releasing such a vision of missional churches, right? That's why we're, we're hopefully planning a church at a, at a school, right, in next year. In Jesus' name, right? That's why, because we're bringing the church outside of the building, we got to get the church into the world. We got to see miracles happening at your workplace. We got to see you activated as a minister in the place where you're called to minister. Guess what? When that happens, you feel life. You feel mission. You feel God's grace. Why? Because you're doing the kingdom in the way that you were called to do it. Amen? Okay, last slide. What does it mean? What does that look like to plant churches at your work? Number one, just be a blessing, okay? 
true Christian activity, it really should make most others happy, okay? If you're acting like a real Christian at your workplace, people should feel really glad that you're around. They should feel blessed. Why? Because you're always telling them that you love them so much, and you want to serve them, and you want to help them when they're out sick. They're like, yeah, I'll help you, right? Everybody wants friends like that. What they don't want, they don't want the religious Christian, right, who's just constantly putting them down and all this kind of crazy stuff. Don't be that guy, okay? Be the one that people feel blessed by. Right, And that should, I, I think that's, that really should be the case for the vast majority of Christians. So what do you do? Number one, seek out other believers at your place of work. Guess what? There's so many closet Christians out there. You would, you would never know it because they're so, they're so ashamed. Of their, right? They're just, they're hiding it, right? They're saying a little, like, the prayer before me. Jesus, thank you. <laughs> right? Because they're so ashamed. Come on, break off the intimidation. Break off the intimidation, church. Break off the intimidation. You be a, learn to fight. Let come on, get some persecution for God's sakes. Persecution. We need a church that is living, living in such a way that it actually gets persecuted. Right? I think that's a sign that you're actually doing damage to the enemy. Right? That you actually get persecuted, right? So intentionally befriend other believers, then just open up to them. Look, if you come to be like, hey, I want to start a prayer meeting at my church, at my at, at, at the at the work, right? And then your friend's gonna be like, uh, don't really want to do that. But if you become friends with them first, okay, and you're like, they're my homies, and then you open up, you know, honestly, I would really love it if we could just pray sometimes at church. That's gonna be something that's a lot more compelling to a lot of believers, right? You open up, you share your heart. This is what I would like. Would you help me do this? Right? That's a message that a lot of believers will come on board and say, yeah, I would love to do that, okay? And then pray for your coworkers. Pray for blessings on the company and start there, okay? Otherwise, we're going to go for like another hour, which I'm sure some of you are like, no, no, please. Okay. Bow your heads with me right now. Father, I thank you for all of these believers, Lord. For all of these sons and daughters who want to know you more. And Lord, who want to put your kingdom first. God, I'm praying that you'd give them a vision for their own lives, Father. Give them a vision for what you're calling them to do. Lord, that they don't need to live intimidated and constantly attacked. But Father, that they can become spiritual warriors and learn how to take ground for the kingdom. Learn how to minister to other people. How to set them free. This is the desire of every believer, God. We want to be your hands and feet in the earth, Lord God. We want you to use us, Lord God, to bring healing to the broken. Father, we want you to use us to speak words of life and encouragement to those around us. Father, to give love to those who feel unloved. Father, to bring truth and freedom to those who are in bondage. And Father, I'm praying, Lord God, that you would give a vision to every single person in this room today, Lord, to, have a, to, to be a minister of the gospel, to be a minister of your kingdom, Lord God. And Father, to have an ability and a grace to take what you've given them. And Lord, set it to practice, set it to work, Lord God, in their place of business. And Father, I pray that you would raise up, Lord, entrepreneurs from this group, Father, who would have kingdom vision of how to start the businesses, Lord God, and the charities, Lord, and the, and the organizations that you want to build in the earth in this next generation. Father, I pray, take a hold of these students, Lord, and give them grace in this area. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.